Nice to see you guys. Y'all doing okay? Well into the semester now? Feeling okay about it? Stressed out a little bit? A little bit. A lot? Uh, not so much. Okay, a little. Okay, a few of you are. Okay. Um, that's okay. That's all right. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, unless you quit. Then it'll get real easy real fast. Um, okay, wow. Uh, no. Let's get into the book of Romans then. Um, I, the more I study this book, and the more I study the New Testament, or the Bible in general, and then try to preach about it, it just comes across as, this is a difficult task, right? Like, in the, where you guys are in life, you know, some of you are really trying to walk with the Lord, but keep running up against just difficulties. Um, you know, some of you maybe walked with the Lord when you were in high school, but have begun to walk away from the Lord, and, and you're trying to feel out what it looks like to be your own person, to be in college, and to be, uh, sort of have at least some degree of authority over your life and what you believe. And then some of you probably weren't raised in the church at all, and you just come to this place, and we put on music, and we sing, and you're like, what's going on here? These people are in a cult or something. Uh, I understand that. Uh, you know, and so y'all can just be so, you know, anywhere really. And then we're going to try to take this book that was written 2,000 years ago where a Jewish convert to Christianity is writing back to some tensions that are going on in Rome at the turn of the millennia. Um, and this tension between Jews and Gentiles. And he's sort of speaking his theology, his way of being, who God is, what God is like, what God expects from His people, what God is going to do in the future, and all this stuff. He's speaking into that. And then you guys are here and we're going to take that and hopefully let it run across your life in such a way that you want to follow God, that you want to be encouraged by Him, that you want to hear from Him, that you want to walk as He would have you walk. Um, and then in this moment and in this evening, He might speak to you um, and guide you out of maybe somewhere you're in. You know, so like we're asking a lot. Like we're coming here and asking the Lord to speak and direct. Um, and we're asking Him to do it through a letter written 2,000 years ago. And we're asking Him to do it through that letter to you guys who are across the board in just where you are in life. Um, so I guess I, tonight, I just say all that because I want to pray for just one second um, and ask you to ask the Lord um, sort of give him freedom to speak to you, if that makes sense. Um, sort of say that's what you want. So he doesn't have to break any doors down. He doesn't have to kick you in the face and then send you to jail four times. And then you're like, okay, God, I'll do what you want to do. That we kind of would just move into a place of, I want to hear from you. I want direction. That's scary. Something like that. So would you guys pray with me real quick? Uh, Father, tonight we acknowledge. Uh, that you're good and that you are scary in some ways and that turning over authority and control to you uh, is a difficult thing but we just stop and say that we believe that you're good um, and we stop and say tonight uh, that we want to hear from you we want to know what you have for us we want to be directed by you. Uh, and we want this short bit of time that we have where we slow down uh, from so many things, from friends, from school, from assignments, from running from you. 
we just slow down now and say, yes, please speak. That we're, we're willing and that's what we want. And we open our hearts to that in whatever way you want to do that. We trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, let's, let's jump into this. Um, we're going to have to unpack something that's a little difficult tonight. It's this notion of the law. And when I say the law, that is a huge word in Jewish theology and Jewish understanding. They have what they call the first five of their books is called the Torah in Hebrew. Uh, that translated into English is the law. The law is sort of the foundation of everything that is Jewish life, culture, um, absolutely everything. Um, and so we need to unpack that a little bit, but we'll get there. I kind of want to trot this line of thought that's in Romans. Keep in mind, like we said the first night we started talking about this, this is a book that was most likely, as far as we understand, when Paul wrote a letter, so it wasn't written like he didn't write a book. He wrote a letter to a church in Rome. Um, and this church is a little bitty church. It's not, it's not a big church. Small church. I mean, the Christianity has just exploded in the last 50 years, uh, maybe 60 years of him writing this letter. And so he's writing this letter to this church in Rome. And what's gone on is this church is made up of Jews and Gentiles, but right before this letter was written, all the Jews were kicked out of Rome because the emperor didn't really care for Jews. And then the next emperor comes on and allows the Jews to come back in. And when they come back in, there's tension inside of the church between Jews and non-Jews. And that tension is there specifically because Christianity is birthed out of Judaism. It's not its own religion, so to speak. It's not like... Jesus sort of came and was like, I've got some new ideas for you guys, and if you'd like to write them down, here we go, and I'll start talking to you and tell you what they are. Rather, he's coming along and saying, I'm the fulfillment of all of the prophecies that are in the Jewish Old Testament. I am the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Jews. I'm the fulfillment of all the, the fears of the Jews. I'm the fulfillment of everything that is Jewish culminates in Jesus, and that's what he would say. Your temple points to me. Your sacrifices point to me. Your prophets point to me. Your Torah or the law points to me. Everything points to me. And so Jesus comes along and says that, but in saying that, he also says, it used to be that only Jewish people were the people of God. Now I'm opening the door for everyone else, Gentiles, non-Jews, to be the people of God. And so when that happened, the church is sort of birthed, what we call the church, those people who believe in Jesus and want to walk as He walked, is birthed, but in it, there is this tension between non-Jews and Jews because Jews think they got a little bit of the upper hand, right? Because it's, it's, right, it's their teachings, it's their prophecies, it's their Messiah. Um, and so they're kicked out of the church. Gentiles sort of get to run the house for a bit. The Jews come back, and I think they want to push their weight around a little bit. And so Paul is writing in that context and he's taking his theology, his understanding of God, his understanding of what Jesus has done, his understanding of what that means for everyone, and he's inserting it into that particular context, that particular struggle. So that's where he's speaking from. So let's trace the line of thought real, real quickly where we started, right? So the book of Romans opens... Um, the sort of culmination in 116 where, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. If you remember, the gospel is not Jesus died for you so you can go to heaven, but rather the gospel is a declaration that Jesus is Lord where humans sort of gave away right and rulership and the running of the earth 
to the demonic realm. Jesus has come and restored that. And so it's not just about the demonic realm, but it's about sin taking hold of humanity and driving humanity down a path that it wasn't supposed to go. And in so, taking the world down a path that it wasn't supposed to go. And Jesus comes in and says, I've defeated everything that is taking humans down the path that is not in line with the will of God. I've defeated all that in my crucifixion and in my resurrection. And now I am Lord of all things. I am Lord of all creation. And following Me and and, and submitting to Me and having faith in Me will save you. And this is what Paul says. Save you from the wrath of God that is being poured out. Okay, and so if you're a good American Christian my guess is whenever I say wrath of God, the first thing that you think is hell, right? And so what we think when we read Romans 1 is that Paul is saying, Jesus died on a cross to save you from the wrath of God, which is hell. And we, we've got to get that out of our minds because this is going to develop a little more. What's going on in Romans 1 and then develops into Romans 2 and Romans 3 is this story that humans were created by God to be in relationship with Him and to have dominion over His creation. To not just be sort of here, but rather be His image on the earth. This is what Genesis 1 is talking about. To be His image on the earth, the image by which God is understood and seen in the physical realm as they were in relationship with Him. They walked away from Him, from that relationship, and the life that that provided. And in doing that, they succumb to what Ephesians and a bunch of other places are going to say, the flesh, the world, and the demonic realm. And as they did that, they walked away from the will of God. And as they walked away from the will of God, creation itself crumbled underneath them because humans were supposed to be the image of God, having dominion over the earth, carrying it along according to the will of God. When they walk away, things begin to fall apart. And then you get to Genesis 12 and the creation of the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation is created to set right what went wrong with Adam and Eve. So the Jews understand themselves as this nation, this chosen people, not chosen to sort of be in God's blessing and have a good time, but rather chosen by God to bring about the worship of God and the restoring of the world because it's gone down the wrong path. So Jews understand themselves to exist for that purpose. That's why Abram, their forefather, was called, turned into Abraham, Abraham had a son who had a son who had 12 sons who then go to Egypt and then come out a few million people and then then Israelite nation is born. You know the story. So the Jews understand themselves to be the people by whom God is going to set the world right. They feel important, right? Real important, right? <laughs> okay, so that's how they understand themselves. And as they understand themselves in that way, and they begin to walk away from God, their prophets start coming and saying, you've walked away, you've walked away, you've walked away. The Messiah is going to come and set things right. And so they begin to hope in this Messiah. They begin to hope in this person who's going to come and set things right because they've sort of forfeited that responsibility in some regard. And in comes the Messiah, who is Jesus. And Jesus then says, yeah, I'm the one who's going to set things right. He dies on a cross. They didn't expect their Messiah to die on a cross. They expect him to overthrow Rome and take over the world and set things right. He dies on a cross and then disappears into the clouds. And so a lot of the Jews don't follow him, but some of them do. And then the church is birthed, and then here we have Rome, right? And so what we've got is 
Jesus, before he ascends into the clouds, he's saying something along the lines of, I am going to return and set the world right. So we have to understand that when Romans says the wrath of God is coming, what that means is God is set on doing away with evil on the earth. Right, so sort of just for a moment, don't completely do this, but sort of remove heaven and hell from your mindset and understand that humans were put in, direct, in responsibility of directing the earth. They walked away from God. God restores humans back to their ability to be with him and direct the world, but the earth still is falling apart. Right, so uh, Syria, right, if you even listen to the news for a minute, right? So there's all these refugees fleeing from this war-torn nation, and now they're coming up to the border of many places in Europe, Germany being one place, um, I think Austria being another place, but they're trying to get into Europe, right? And they can't get into Europe because Europe doesn't have room for them. So you've got these people that are carrying their children, and they're carrying their, uh, the, any belongings that they have, and they're carrying their wives if they can, and they're just picking up and they're running away from this war-torn place because they don't want their children to be tortured and killed or just killed by some stray bomb. And so they're, they're fleeing Syria and they're trying to make it into Europe. And there's, I, I, if, I might be wrong in this, but I think the number is, is 10,000 a day or something along those lines are leaving Syria. This is going on right now. Just not in this country while you're in college. Right? So they're, they're running away with their family. And as they're running away with their family, uh, there's this picture that's circulating now of one of these little children that as they were running away drowned in the sea because they couldn't figure out a way to get him there. And so they're posting these pictures to say, hey, look what's going on in Syria. But as they get to this place where it's like, maybe we'll be safe in Germany and we can at least get away from this, they're not allowed in. So they're sort of on the outskirts of Germany sitting there and there's more and more of them coming and they don't have anything to eat and they can't get in and there's nothing for them to do. So they can't bathe, they can't shower, they can't do anything. And they're sort of sitting there and their children are filthy. Their children are like, it's just this terrible thing going on because there's nowhere to go and there's just this bottleneck of Syrians fleeing for their lives with nowhere to go. And that's just right now. Right? So we, we have to get into our minds that the world is a broken place. It's a very broken place. It's an extremely broken place. And if God is good, if God is good, He's got to set this place right. The wrath of God sounds really harsh to us because we live in a content, just an incredibly affluent country. The Jews at this time have been oppressed for 700 years. At any time, a Roman soldier can walk up to them and make them carry their stuff. Their own people, there are Jewish people that go to other Jews on behalf of Rome and tax them, take money from them, and when they take that money, they take more than they're allowed to take so they can line their pockets. And then with the money that they do not line their pockets, with the money they do take, they give back to Rome so Rome can feed the army that is oppressing them. And they're living in that. The Greeks did it before that. The Persians did it before that. The Assyrians did it before that. The Babylonians did it before that. So these are people that live in oppression and they're waiting for God to come to judge these people who are killing their children and forcing them to do things that they don't believe God has allowed them to do. 
Right? So they're waiting for God to come and they're asking Him, please come and set this right. Please get rid of these wicked rulers. Please do away with this, this crap that's going on like we're tired of it. And they pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and, and, and God moves rather slowly. So when we think wrath of God, we're like, oh my dear Lord, why is God such a jerk? And definitely, for much of the population of much of history, the wrath of God coming against wicked, oppressive rulers is a thing they've waited for their entire lives. And they continue to wait for. Syrians are waiting for somehow, some way, things to be set right. Maybe they don't have the words to say we hope it's the Messiah coming from Israel because I doubt they believe that. But they hope that things are going to be set right. And so when Paul is talking about this and he says the wrath of God is coming, that's what he's speaking into. This is a hope. It's not a fear. It's salvation in so many ways. It's not God coming in and being like, where's all the bad boys? I'm going to send you to hell. Okay, they're like, that's just the way we've painted the narrative of Christianity, and it's so divorced from Scripture. Okay, so is heaven and hell real? Yeah, yeah, that's all there. That's a part of the story. Okay, but just for the moment, let's sort of remove that from our understanding of the narrative because I think it's been so overdone that it just paints every way that we see the Scriptures. Okay, so God is coming. And His wrath is coming to do away with the wickedness on the earth. And He says in 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. I'm not ashamed about this, this declaration of Jesus that there is salvation from the wrath of God. And then so in His argument in Romans, He understands the minds of the Jews so well that He just sort of has a hypothetical argument with them. Because in the mind of a Jew, whenever Paul says the wrath of God is coming, and he says it's coming on these wicked people, the Jews' first thing in their mind is, well, thank God. All these non-Jewish people who don't have the law and don't have God and all those things, yeah, it's about time that God got rid of them. I hope they burn. That'll be great. Let's get rid of them. Right? And so the, the next place that Romans turns is, okay, don't start judging because you who judge those who do wicked things and yet do them yourselves, you're not going to be saved from the wrath of God coming on you. And that's where Joe kind of hit last week. So don't sort of presume on the riches of His kindness. If you're doing the same things that these other people are doing, don't think that you're going to be good and they're not. Rather, you're, He's coming to do away with all the wickedness on the earth because He's a good God. And that's something that He needs to do. And so the first thing that the Jews think is, oh great, all the Gentiles are going to be put in their place. And He says, no, 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 no. no. Don't think just because you're Jewish everything's going to be fine. Because you have walked away from me in so many ways. And then so the next thing that pops into the mind of the Jews is what we're going to look at tonight. The next thing that's going to pop into the mind of the Jews that Paul is going to address is, of course, not all of the Jews are going to be saved. There's those really bad Jews, like the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Right? So, fine. Like, we, okay, that'll be good. So it's like, first, there's salvation and all the Jews will be saved. And he's like, don't, don't, don't think all the Jews are going to be saved. And he's like, okay, of course not all the Jews. There's the bad Jews. And so he's going to speak into what about these Jews who have followed the law and are good Jews? And that's where we're going to enter into this discussion. And read, and then I'll explain, and we'll get through this. Okay. For all who have sinned... I'm sorry, let me tell you where we are. 
Uh, Romans 2, go to verse 12. And maybe take a deep breath. I need to take a deep breath. Okay, yeah. Let it out, right? Whew. That was almost too much. Okay. We actually have to preach a sermon now. All right. So, uh, 2.12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, for when non-Jews who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, here it comes again, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus will be the person who comes in and sets the world right. Where everything is laid bare. The secrets, the hearts, the emotions, the deeds of men throughout all history sort of laid bare before this Messiah who has come to judge. Not just to say, good boy, bad boy, good girl, bad girl. But to do away with wickedness on the earth so the earth can be what it was meant to be once again. And so, real quickly, just real quickly, the thing with Romans is some people have spent like over eight years just preaching through this book. Um, and that's good. I've just only, I only have you for four, and I'd like to get done with it in one. Um, and so we're gonna, I'm going to give you the trajectory of this argument. I'm not going to drop in and explain every verse. Um, it really might take more than eight years. But we just want to carry you along in the trajectory. So there might be things that don't make sense. There might be little verses like, what, what does that even mean? Um, I don't know. Email me, and we'll, talk, we'll chat. Okay, so, so just the answer to this question. Um, Just because you have the law doesn't mean um, that one, you even obey the law. And just because you have the law doesn't mean that earns you good standing before God. If I could sort of boil that part down, that's where I would go with it. Don't think just because you have the law, that just because you have the law, God sees you as good. It's not hearers of the law, but doers of the law that are righteous before God, right? And so that's, that's at the heart of it. And that's what he's talking about between Jews and Gentiles. So there might be these non-Jews that do what the law says, and so they show that the law of God is written on their hearts, and so their conscience does the job that the conscience is supposed to do. And so he, he's not really making a huge point about that other than it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law that are righteous before God. And so in me saying that, I think it's really important that I unpack for a second, what is the law? Like really, when, I, when they say the law, what does that mean? Because I think uh, we're Westerners and our view of the law comes through Greek and Roman understandings of laws. And so we think law is a rule book given by an institution, whether it be the government or something like that, but it's a rule book given by an institution to govern the way that you should act. Right, so when I say law, is that something along those lines come to your mind? Or does something completely different come to your mind? Pretty cl- Okay, thank you. Pretty close. Okay. It's a rule book given by an institution. When they say law, they mean something like almost the opposite of that. The law for them, translate it backwards, that's Torah in Hebrew. Torah is the first five books of their Bible. So, the law for them is a familial 
relational promise by a good God who loves them and has saved them from Egypt in slavery, from the Assyrians who attacked Jerusalem and did away with them, and then little armies for most of the beginning of their history. So it's a God who worked through them and saved them and made promises to them about them being this nation called by Him to set the world right. This nation called by Him to live in a different way of life where they understand who God is and how He created the world to work. And He created this law so He saved them from slavery in Egypt. He saved this nation, created this nation, and then He went before them and gave them this land called Israel, the promised land flowing with milk and honey, right? You've heard that before. And He gives them this land and He drives out all the people that were there before them. They settle this piece of land and they are under His blessing. So they've been saved by slavery. They've been given a land. And all when they say law, they mean the promises about that. The promises that their Messiah is going to come and set things right. The promises that as they walk according to the rules given to them in the Ten Commandments and other places, that as they walk according to the way that their good Father, their good God has called them to walk, that they are going to walk in in a way of blessing and life that will be so good that it will draw the other nations to them to where the other nations will say, what's going on in Israel? Their God must be the real God. And this is all surrounding the law. This is why David would say, "I, I meditate on your law day and night. Right? It's not like he was opening up the rule books and being like, oh, great. If someone takes my eye, I can take their eye, and that sounds awesome. Right? No, he's looking back on what God has done to save his people. He's even looking back in his own life and seeing God save him from the hand of Saul, save him from the hand of the Philistines, save his people from all these things. It's promises, it's covenants, it's relationship, and in that relationship, just like when you have kids, you are going to put borders around your kids to save them from killing themselves. My son loves screwdrivers. He loves to pick them up and like run with them. And he's clumsy. And I have visions of him like getting himself in the neck, you know? And I'm like, no, 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 no don't do that, don't do that. And I'll take it from him. And he looks at me and he's like, and it's like th- like three seconds before anything comes out. And then he just, ah! And I'm like, you're going to kill yourself with this scourge. It's so sharp, right? So like, I put boundaries around my kid because I love him. And, I care- and you understand that. So this is exactly how the Jews understand the law. It's not rule books from an institution. It's promises and expectations from a loving father. That's what's wrapped up in Torah. And so... Just, just this will make full sense. Let's just keep going. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God, know His will, approve what is excellent. You see how good he's making this? There's a little sarcasm here because he's going somewhere, but you couldn't feel what he's saying. 
You, you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. So you see what he's saying? He's saying the Jews believe that because of the law, they are a light to those in darkness. They are the light to the non-Jews who don't have the law of God. They view the law as this beautiful good thing that leads them into life and into blessing, into good things. And so they're saying, if you believe that you understand who God is and He's given you your law, you approve what is excellent. You have wisdom and understanding and that you're a light to those in darkness, right? Keep going, keep going. So, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And then here's where the sarcasm comes in. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God... So this is in Isaiah, he's quoting. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So do you see this tension here? We've got the law. We're good, we're good with God. We're safe from the wrath of God coming against wickedness. And then he looks at them and he says, 700 years ago it was written that you do the opposite of what you were supposed to do. You say you have the law, and in the law it's supposed to bring about this way of life where the nations look in and say, the God of Israel must be the real God. Let me be a part of Israel so I can have interaction with the real God. That is what's wrapped up in Genesis 12 and the promise made to Abraham when the, 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 the nation of Israel is born. That all the nations will be blessed through Abraham, through the nation of Israel, right? So in that, they're saying we've got the law and people are going to look in and know that God is real. And what God is saying 700 years before this is... Not only do the Gentiles not look in and say, hey, I want to be Jewish. Look how awesome it is to be Jewish. Their God must be the real God. The nations look in and say, if there is a God, He doesn't have anything to do with them. And so Paul is saying, the wrath of God is being poured out to set the world to right. And do not think that just because you're Jewish, everything is going to be fine. And don't think just because you have the law Everything is going to be fine. So this is like me and Joe were talking before this. It just feels like we're punching you like, like three nights, three Sundays in a row. Romans 1 and 2 is just heavy. What's going on is he's leveling the playing field. And Paul is just saying, Jew and Gentile, nothing you do before God earns you anything. You're all in need of salvation from him. That's kind of the point he's making. I'll give you a hint. That's where he's going. But when we're in the middle of it, it just feels like I'm punching you in the face like week after week. Okay, anyway. So the Jews. You've been a part of the evil you were supposed to be standing against. Right? You then who teach others, don't you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You don't like idols, and yet you rob temples. Right? He's just saying... You don't even follow the law that you say is going to save you. You don't, you don't even, so you're in need of something. And then let's just finish this chapter real quick. It'll, it'll tie it up because we're going to get into circumcision. I'm not going to unpack that. If you want to talk about circumcision, just, again, actually don't even send me an email. That would be weird. If you catch me in the street, just say, hey, what's up with circumcision? And we'll chat right there. Okay, that's the only time. 
Okay, go to verse 25. Let's just finish it out. We'll be real quick with it. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. Whoo! Right? Circumcision like seven times. Circumcision for the Jews is a sign to them is a sign to them that they are Jewish. So when God makes this first huge initial promise to Abram about I'm going to give you a child who's going to become a nation and then that nation is going to be the means by which all the nations are blessed and he's like 90 something years old at this time. He doesn't have any children and his wife is barren. Right? So Abram's like, well, uh, I don't believe you actually. Um, and, but he begins to believe him, right? Um, and so... And so, um, circumcision is just this thing given to Abraham, uh, which is a way to distinguish Jews from non-Jews. So when they talk about circumcision, it's not this medical thing they do for cleanliness or something. Rather, it is a sign of their Jewishness. They prided themselves on being those called the circumcision. They actually called themselves that. Like that was... Uh, it's like a synonym for Jew is the circumcision. <laughs> it's weird. It's so weird. Right. Let's not act like that's not weird. Okay. So circumcision is just a, sh- a sign of them being Jewish. The promises made. It just equate that with a law. It's a part of the law. It's a part of what designates them as being those who have been chosen by God to know God, to understand God, and to bring about the knowledge of God on the earth. It's just the sign that designates them. Right, and what he's saying is, okay, just because you did the little sign, just because you did the little circumcision thing, that doesn't set you right. This is about your heart, and this is about you standing right and righteous before God. This isn't about your nationality. It's not about you being Jewish. It's not about the written code. And it's not about the little sign, the circumcision thing. None of that has any value or standing before God. None of it does. You need something else. You need salvation from somewhere else. And so we'll cut to the chase real quick. Where does that salvation come from? Of course, right. Salvation is, like we heard in Romans 1, from the work of Jesus where He goes to the cross for all of men, both Jew and Gentile. So the sins of all men, both Jew and Gentile, are placed on Jesus. And in His crucifixion, the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus so that those who believe in Him do not have to have the wrath of God poured out on them. So Jesus consumes the wrath of God instead of those who trust and have faith in Him, Jew and Gentile both. So none of your righteous deeds earn you anything before God. The only thing that sets you right before God is you trusting in the work of the Messiah, the one whom He sent. Right? 
And so my guess is, my guess is like 90% of you know that story. You understand at some level the gospel. You understand at some level that Jesus has made a way so that you stand as righteous before God because my guess is most of you are not Jewish and so you wouldn't say that anyway. But some of you might go along the lines of saying I'm a good person or I've done good things or I've never killed anybody or I've never robbed a temple or whatever you might say that says I'm good before God. And he would say none of that works actually. The only thing that makes you right before God is believing and trusting in the one whom he has sent, the only place that you find life. Um, and so I want to make a real quick application. It's already too late, but I want to make a real quick application in this regard. I think it's so, so, so easy for us to become just like the Jews were. The Jews would say, right, I'm Jewish, so of course I'm saved from the wrath of God. We are Americans, and Americans by culture, and this is changing, but by culture are largely a Christian nation. Like I said, that's changing, but Christianity, especially if you're from the South, right? Mama was a Christian, Dad was a Christian, Grandma was a Christian. We went to church, I went to church, we all went to church. Um, And I think it's real easy to say, well, of course I'll be saved from the wrath of God when He comes to set things right, because... I got saved when I was seven years old or I said this prayer about asking Jesus into my heart and here I go and that's that's good. And I want to say that that's so close to what the Jews did. I think it's so easy to have gotten saved when you were seven or nine or ten or even maybe when you were older than and knew exactly what you were doing. But what slowly begins to happen is you just begin to, because it's not clear sometimes what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, to really have faith and trust and put all of your hope in Him, you said a prayer that sort of makes you okay with God and you believe that you're saved now, but you still continue to pursue your own course in life. And you feel fine about it. You feel justified in it because you're saved. And the thing is, I don't know if you are or not. Like, I, I, you I wish you all had a little light that was like red or green. And I could be like, yep, that's good. Okay, we're good here. But that's not the case. Most people in the South have walked through something along the lines of salvation so that there's this entrance into Christianity. And I would say a lot of those people never really became disciples of Jesus. They never really said, I want to follow Jesus where He wants to go. I want to do what He wants to do. Rather, they got saved because heaven sounds cool and hell sounds bad. And who wants God pissed at you anyway, mad at you anyway? Um, And so I'll say this prayer, right? And, And so I think it's real easy. I think it's real easy to just sort of get into cruise control in your relationship with the Lord or to say I'm saved and of course I'll be saved from the wrath of God because I'm I'm a Christian and yet your life is still your life there was never a time when you really crucified your future your hopes your dreams and all of that and said I want to be crucified with Christ I want to be raised with Christ I want to follow him where he wants to go I want to be a disciple of Jesus It was just this other cultural thing. And so it makes me unclear about really where a lot of people who claim Christianity stand is because there's something more to it than that. You've got to take up your cross and follow Him. Or like He said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He said weird stuff. 
but you have to consume all of him and go the direction that he is going. It's not good enough to have said a prayer and then continue in your own life. And so I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to be like just slamming you in the face about this. Um, I just think it puts us as Americans in a sort of sketchy place because it's not like we're Muslims and we said this prayer. No, we're just good American Christians and we said the prayer. And so this is right in line with, um, man, this is right in line with, with John 10 where Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. My sheep know my voice. And I lead them in and out of pasture. And I lay down my life for them. But a stranger's voice, they don't listen to. And I think what happens really easily is maybe even somewhere along the line, you did follow Jesus. And, and that was a real genuine thing. You, did, you said that prayer, I want to follow Jesus. I want to give everything to Him. I want Him to take my sin. I want all that. Let's go. But then just the other voices that we have in this country about your future, about what you want out of life, about making sure you get a wife or you get a husband, or making sure you have a good time when you're in college, or making sure that you're established for the future financially, or just making sure that you have friends and acceptance right now in the present. And those voices just sort of crowd out the voice of the Good Shepherd. They sort of crowd out this good shepherd that wants you to lead that wants to lead you and wants to walk in front of you and that you would move through your life in such a way that you've not brought all this control you've not brought all of uh you deciding what goes on and how things go but you sort of step out into a degree of mystery saying i want to go where you want me to go and i'm going to be willing to let you lead one step at a time because I think what keeps a lot of us from actually following the Good Shepherd and doing away with the voices is really not just like rebellion, I want to do what I want. Rather, it's just like little bits of fear about what it's going to look like if you do. Because you don't know exactly what it's going to look like. It's not so much like, I want control. It's just like, if I let go of this, that's, so, that's sort of satisfying right now. If I let go of this, what will I have? If I let go of this, what, where will be my future? If I've wanted to be a nurse my whole life, or I've wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer my whole life, I've wanted to be this. If I actually say, Jesus, lead wherever you want to lead, he might step in and say, hey, I want you to do something else. And then, oh, my, your future is just up in the air. And it's, it's almost like whenever you say, I want you to lead, you're sort of throwing it all up in the air. And that's scary, and so you sort of retreat back into the pen, and the good shepherd's out there saying, like, come on, let's go this way. Like, I, I want you to walk with me. I've got life for you. I've got good things for you. I have a way of life for you that's different than this fear and this worry and this anxiety and this control to try to make your life into what you want it to be. I have something different, so let's walk along in this, and I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen in 15 years. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen in two years. I'm just going to lead you step by step and day by day, and if you walk with me and go the way I'm going, you're going to find life and happiness and rest. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and you'll find rest for yourself. Like I promise that will happen. And yet we stay in the pen because we don't know for sure that if we let this go and this go, that it's going to be okay. And so fear just sort of cripples. And that's kind of what I'm afraid of. You stay in this crippled place, in this fearful place, and you justify staying there because you said a prayer or because you're a Christian or because you go to church, just like the Jews would say, 
we have the law, we have circumcision. And he says, that's dangerous. That is so dangerous. And not only is it dangerous, there's just no life in it. It's not what he has for his children. It's not what he wants for your life. It's not, it's just not beautiful and good and faithful and trusting. It's fearful, selfish, control, and you can feel the life slipping away, but you're too scared to sort of let go and jump out into all that he has. And so like, wow, I just rambled at you for eight minutes, but that I think is so, so important. I think it's so easy to be there and to slip into that place, especially now that you have a bit more control of your life, especially now that you're in college, and especially now you can really go and make your own decisions and go this path, and wherever you decide, you can go. And so I just want to say, he's really, really that good. He really is the good shepherd, and he really does know what's best and he really does know how to lead, and he really does know how to communicate step by step, and sometimes letting go is the most beautiful and freeing thing that you will ever experience, but you won't know it until you just sort of let go of your future, of the past, of acceptance, of insecurities, of all these things that can take control of our lives. And so I'm urging you not pushing at you, just urging you. It took me 22 years to get to that place. It took me a lot of darkness to get to that place. And the last eight years of my life have been something I cannot explain to you. On the way to the Rook trip, me and Marshall were both saying, it's weird. We live in East Texas in Nacogdoches. And the last few years since we followed the Lord have been the most exciting time in our lives. When you follow the Lord into the mystery of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, you will find more life and excitement than you've ever seen before, without a doubt. But it just takes like a step, you know?